So uh, this evening I want to cover quite a few things and we'll see how much I can cover. <coughs> so I had a, a few notes and questions about uh, ethics and about the Bodhisattva precepts. And so I'd like to, to start with that. But first, I'd like to start with a, a little story. And this is a story uh, when I was researching a book on Buddhism and women. And then I went to Korea and I was looking for different uh, nuns, lay women. And I heard of this nun, Buddhist nun, who actually created, founded a nursing home for old women and nuns who had no family and nobody to take care of them. So I went to see her and I asked her, you know, but how come you decided to do this? And she said, well, you know, I became a nun, I wanted to really become awakened and save everybody. So I went to do the study and then I went to do meditation. And as I was meditating, trying to awaken, I thought, if I wait to be awakened, to be compassionate, it might take a few <laughs> lifetimes. <laughs> so then she decided, would not it be a better idea to practice, to awaken, and at the same time, do compassionate activity now? <laughs> so that's what she was doing. So the Bodhisattva vows, the Bodhisattva precepts are mentioned uh, as kind of one of the framework for the question, for the practice of compassion. And so somebody was asking me about, you know, what is the shape of these precepts? And so I, I translated them because the reason I translated them is when I was in Korea and I got to understand the language more, and then every two weeks they were recited, and so I kind of started to see, oh yeah, that's what they're about. And then I started to see that actually what people did in the monastery was very much according to the Bodhisattva precept, so that it was really an inspiration for them. And so I'll just, I mean, there are 58, 10 major and 48 minor, minor precepts, but I'll just mention a few, just to give you just a little taste of what they're about. So for example, the first one, generally they have a title and then a little explanation. First one, refrain from taking life. But what is interesting is how they comment on it. A disciple of the Buddha must ref refrain from taking life either by performing the act of killing himself by causing someone else to do it, by doing it in a roundabout way, by praising death, by the use of spell or mantra. So what is interesting with this precept, they're not just saying, don't do this. They generally look at the condition by which you might do it. So in a way, we could look at harmfulness. We might not cause harm directly. But do we cause harm indirectly? Do we cause someone else to cause harm for us? So it's kind of looking, in a way, at the different conditions, the different relationships. Then, one about lies is very interesting. So again, he goes through the a disciple of the Buddha must refrain from telling lies, either by doing it herself, by causing someone else to do it, etc., etc. So you have the whole thing. And then, he must never convey the impression that he saw something he did not see, or did not see something that he did see, either by physical gesture or by mental intention. So this is getting kind of subtle. <laughs> no? This is interesting. And to me, these precepts are not so much like rule and regulation. Don't do this. They're more an invitation to explore. 
an ethical life in many different ways. So it's really about exploring the different conditions in a way that helps us to be ethical, that helps us to be compassionate, that helps us to respect others. Then you had the eight refrain from reviling others in order to spare oneself. That's an interesting one. It's quite psychologically astute that you may sometimes you put people down so that you don't have to put energy for them or whatever it might be. Another one is refrain from being angry when someone comes to ask forgiveness, treat her well. And then there is a little bit which is lovely in it. If, on the contrary, a bodhisattva should abuse a living creature or vent his anger on an inanimate object, and if even though he may he may have resorted to beating them with his hand, a stick or a knife, and the person has asked for forgiveness, his anger remains unappeased. This is an extremely serious transgression. And so again, here, inanimate object. I mean, in those days, that was in the 4th century AD in China, they might have you know, been kicking a cart, I presume. And nowadays, we, we kick our computers, I would think, <laughs> or our cars. Then we can look a little at the minor, <coughs> the minor one. This one. Care well for those who are sick. Upon seeing someone who is afflicted with a disease, a disciple of the Buddha must care and provide for her as she would for the Buddha himself. And first among the eight fields of blessing is that of nursing the sick. This might kind of connect with some other thing in some other tradition. Then you have number 12. Refrain from doing business with an evil intention. And basically the thing is about you must not buy or sell free citizen or slave or domestic animal or sell coffin, blanks to make a coffin, etc. etc. So it's kind of looking, I mean kind of looking at many different aspects of basically our the way we earn our living. If you could look at it, how do we earn our living? And does this cause harm? Then another one, uh, we don't do this so much nowadays, but do not light destructive fires. And so basically here they say, a, a son or daughter of the Buddha must not with evil intention set fire to mountain, plain, meadows from the fourth to the nine months. Other people's house, city, temples, cultivated field, forest, goods belonging to a spirit, or any public property. He must not intentionally burn any living creature. So this is why between the fourth and the ninth month. So generally they burn their field, and so they did it in the winter, so that the insect would not be, would not be killed. And then the, the last one I wanted to mention. Save the lives of living creatures and set loose those about to be killed. And this precept uh, actually became very active. And it came active in two different ways in China. One was that in the 18th century, if you went to China and you could see the some of the big Buddhist temples were like zoo, because the people would give their old animals. And so you had a little place for the, 
kind of animal with four legs, one in water, and you, it's kind of, you had all this animal. And there is this Dutch man uh, who traveled in China at the time describing finding this temple with all of this rescued animal, in a way. But then the other thing that came out of that precinct is that generally, at certain time of the year, Buddhist people will go, they still do it, would go to the market to rescue live animals and then free them. And so one of the ways they do it is by uh, liberating fish. And then the fishermen catch them again and then sell them again to the Buddhists. So you have a nice little <laughs> thing going on here. So, I mean, this Bodhisattva precept, you have some who date. I mean, to me, some are very relevant and we can reflect, explore them in our time. Some are really to that time. And some, again, of course, are a little bit of a competition between different traditions and things of that nature. But the spirit of it is very much about cultivating, developing, manifesting wise, compassionate activity. And so kind of looking at our relationship with ourselves, with others, with the world. Then I wanted to, to, because somebody was asking, we had this very good question, in a way about goal. Uh, what is the goal of the practice? Is there some kind of enlightenment or awakening that is a goal of the practice? We don't know what it is necessarily but we still aim for it. And when we think about practice, it seems to me that we can look at it into different types of goal. I would say we can look in terms of short-term goal. That you know, that often the short-term goal when we start the practice is, can I develop more peace? Can I develop more understanding? Can I develop more compassion? Can I have less suffering? And so we have this short-term goal and we practice and we kind of like match it a little bit. If I do the meditation, does it make a difference to the way I am in the world? I mean, I had done many years ago, early, early days of Buddhism. Uh, there was this man in France who became a Buddhist, but like in the early day when you know you did not really have teachers around in the 50s, 60s, and he kind of you know got it from books and things, and he was an architect, so he had his architect office, and about once a day he would say to everybody, "I am going to meditate," and everybody was, "Oh, not again, not again." <laughs> so he would kind of you know go, he had a little space and meditate. And then when he came out of the meditation, he was so angry, he would shout at <laughs> That's why the people were not so keen on it. Until finally, I think somebody pointed it out to him, or he finally kind of thought, wait a minute, this meditation is not making me more peaceful and compassionate. And then what he found out is that he was repressing himself, actually. Don't think, don't. And then actually kind of made it more tense. So after that, he changed his method and then it uh, did more kind of what he was supposed to do in a way. So there is, in a way, this short-term goal. And I think this is important. You know, is this working? Is this helping me? Does it make a difference? I think this is kind of a, a good point. And then, of course, we can have this, what I would call like a long-term goal. And then, again, this will be different. Some people will aspire to awakening. Some people will aspire to freedom. Some people will aspire to something else. I know for myself, I, that was my main thing, was throughout, it has been aspiration to develop as much as I can and manifest wisdom and compassion. And of course, when I was in Korea, I mean, in Korea, it's a song practice and it's awakening, breakthrough, and you know, everybody talks about awakening and everything. 
And I would sit there think, well, you know, if I awaken, I don't mind, but what really matters to me is wisdom and compassion. To me, this is really what, in a way, matters to me. And so that's what I was interested in. And what I found out is that actually, yes, doing the meditation, definitely, I could very quickly see how it helped me to be more compassionate, how it helped me to start to have some understanding. And so in a way, to see that kind of gave me more energy to walk on the path. But at the same time, I would make the difference between aspiration and expectation. Aspiration gives us energy and gives us a direction. Expectation is, I must be wise this way, I must be awakened that way. It's quite fixed. I think we have to see a little, sometimes are we aspiring to something or are we expecting something. In the song tradition, in the Korean song, and in the Chan Zen tradition in general, you have this big, big debate, still to this day. And the big debate is about sudden, sudden, or sudden, gradual. <laughs> and so the big thing, basically, is sudden, sudden. Sudden awakening and sudden practice. And that's really what you, you want to go for. This is really the goal of the practice is sudden, sudden. And personally, I think very luckily for me, I was trained in the only temple where a little second rate, <laughs> in that they were into sudden and gradual. And that where it came from a, a great Chinese master, Tsumi and also a great master in Korea, Chinun, who expanded more this idea that you have a sudden awakening followed by a gradual practice, which basically is about dealing with the habits. Then you again have a sudden awakening, <coughs> again followed by working with habits, and so on and so forth. And if I look at my teacher, Master Kuzan, when we kind of did this book, uh, which is in the, the Way of Korean Zen, which is a book about his teaching, and so we wanted to have a little of a biography. So we went to see him and wanted to know a little bit about his practice, his life, and well, if we could a little bit about his awakening, though generally you don't talk about these things. So he told us a little bit about this, that. And then he said, hey, yeah, something happened. And I wrote a poem. And then something else happened. And I wrote a poem. So basically, he was reputed to have had three awakenings. I mean, you might have thought one would be enough, but obviously, in that system, he had three. And so I thought I would share with you the poems of awakening. So each time he had a breakthrough, he then writes the poem, and then he shows it to his master, Master Yobong. And then from the poem, Master Yobong says, yes, this is a real thing, or no, it's not the real thing. So every time he thought it was a real thing. <laughs> so this is Zen's time, awakening. First one. The diverse form in the universe are fundamentally empty. So what meaning would there be in pointing at space? A withered tree standing on a rock feels neither hot nor cold. In spring, flower blooms. In autumn, fruits are born. This is actually made a mistake. This is the second one. So we'll have to backtrack to the first one. Sorry about that. Look at the front of the mirror. 
It is completely dark. Look at the back, and it's brilliantly clear. Look at the front, it is not the front. Looking at the back, it is also not the back. When both front and back are shattered, then truly one has a great, complete mirror. And so now, the last one. Penetrating deep into a pore of Samantabhadra, Manjushri is seized and defeated. Now the great earth is quiet. It is hot on the day of the winter equinox. Pine trees are of themselves green. A stone man riding on a crane passes over the blue mountain. So that's the third one. And at the third one, his teacher said, until now, you have been following me. Now it is I who follow you. So by the third one, the teacher thought, hmm, he knows more than I do. <laughs> and in a way, that's what the teacher is about. The teacher is really there in a way to help us to become our own teacher. And so in a way, to me, this idea of sudden and gradual makes so much sense. Because, personally I would say, it's relatively easy to have an experience. And I'll talk about them shortly. We can sit in meditation, and we can have diverse experience. It lasts a few seconds, it lasts a few hours, or a few days. But generally, like all things, those experiences are impermanent. So when they happen, they're so vivid and obvious. But when they stop, it's like back to ordinary me. And generally, ordinary me, over time, has built a lot of certain habits, mental, emotional, relationship habits. I mean, I was uh, looking at some discussion on the internet some years ago, and there was this lovely kind of discussion on a spiritual website. And the fellow was saying, oh, yes, you know, Ah, I had this amazing experience of being one with the universe and it was so profound and it was so fantastic and everybody was saying, yes, 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 that's great. And then the fellow was saying, but you know, yesterday my girlfriend left me and I feel terrible. <laughs> so you see, you can have a fantastic experience, but is that experience going to help you, is it really transformative? To me, that's what is, to me, what is interesting is that. You can have an experience, but is experience transformative in such a way that you are not so caught in your automatism, that they start to dissolve? And what is interesting in this respect is that actually the Korean Son monks decided a few years back, we're going to show that Korean Son is really good. We're going to really explain it. So for the first time ever, they really explain the stuff, because generally they don't, you know, Zen is beyond words and letters, you know, direct, pointing. But in this book, which is wonderful. They really actually explain things. And it's a wonderful text. And in it, toward the end, they have self-examination of practice and enlightenment. And what is interesting is that basically different masters have given different indication of how you can know if you have a real awakening experience, or if your practice is really 
advancing on the path. So, what are these things? I just wanted to read a few out. Regardless of the rank of upper, middle, and lower, do you respect others? Does your practice accord with your life? Is your desire for material wealth decreasing? Have you firmly established the vow to save all sentient beings? Do you keep the precepts at all times, regardless of being in retreat or not? And he goes on and on like that. And what is interesting about this self-examination, it's not, in a way, how deep is your meditative experience, but it's really is an effect of that meditative experience making a difference in your daily life. And so now I wanted to speak a little bit about meditative experience. So what can we experience? I mean the first thing we can experience as we sit in meditation, is what I would call quietness and clarity. That we practice, and then, and to me is when there is kind of in a little bit a shift between I am doing the practice, I am meditating, I am being aware, to actually the practice <coughs> suddenly nearly does itself. So you're not really doing it, it just happened. So there is less this feeling of agency and instead this feeling of, I would say, experiencing. And so then what happens often is that you feel really quiet and at the same time you feel really clear. And then generally your first reaction is, this is great, I must tell all my friends about it. Oh, this is great, how can I deepen it? And as soon as you do this, it goes. <laughs> and so actually experiencing quietness and clarity is a practice in itself. That when you experience it, when it happens, the point is actually not to do anything. And I would compare it to holding a child, if a mother holds a child, if it's too tight, then it's going to cry. If it's too loose, it's going to drop. And so anyway, when there is this quiet and clear state, what we need to do is just be with it. Just totally be with it. As long as it lasts. And then at some point, the condition that made it appear will be gone and then it will go. But I think what is interesting with that experience is it's nurturing because it helps us to see that we can experience ourselves differently. I think that's quite important. And also I think it's very restful for the organism, energy-wise. But to, to see that it happens, but I cannot feel like this all the time. But there can be, like in a way, a little feel of it embodied that we can connect to in our daily life, in time of crisis. How can I feel a little bit of that so that, again, there can be a wider perspective around what I'm experiencing? Or you can have an insight. I remember when I was in Korea. So in Korea, you know, we would sit 10 hours a day, 50 minutes, five, zero at a time, and then five, 10 minutes walking. We kind of, you only sit 35 minutes. Mm. Because the first time we tried Korean style, 50, 10, 50, 10, at the end of the weekend, nobody could walk. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
maybe we have to adapt this. So now we do the 35. So I was doing, you know, this meditation in Korea, and I am not the greatest meditation sitter. And so by the end of the evening, generally the last sitting was agony, because you do two sitting. So you do all these sittings through the day, then you have uh, from seven to nine, you do 50, 10, 50. So my second 50 was like agony. I have pain, really bad pain. But sometimes I would sit there and I would go inside the pain. And suddenly I would experience emptiness. I would experience the emptiness of the sensation. But it did not mean that every evening I had the emptiness of the sensation. <laughs> but what I knew every morning is that the experience of the sensation in the evening was impermanent. And so in the evening it was much better, in the morning it was much better than in the evening it was worse. Time to time I could have the emptiness, most of the time not. <laughs> And so then I could have the experience, but it did not mean I could have it all the time. I think it's very important to see that. Or you might have an insight. You might see something so clearly suddenly you have never seen before. And so you really see it. I mean, that was my, my first insight early on. And I was sitting in meditation. What is this? What is this? What is this? And suddenly, I became so aware of my thoughts, and that all my thoughts were about me, 95%. And it was such a revelation, because up to that point, I saw I was the most compassionate person in the world, thinking of others before myself. And that was so great. I thought, oh, that's what I have to work with. And it did not make me despondent. I just thought, ah, okay, that's what I have to work with. But I saw it very clearly, but after that, it did not mean that I did not have mean thought. It took a long time for them to overturn to dissipate. So in the moment, it's so clear. But after, in a way, it becomes a memory. Because it happened because of those conditions. Or you might have what I would call the heart opening experience. So you're sitting in meditation and suddenly you have this experience that there is nobody, but really nobody, you cannot open your heart to. Basically, you have no problem with nobody. And it feels amazing. Because generally we say, yeah, I love everybody, but not that one. You know, that little corner, no way. So, so there is always a little tension there, even if the rest is really open. And so when you feel that, you feel, wow, this is fantastic. I love everybody. But how long does it last? You know, you go back home and the neighbor. <laughs> their tingling bells, or whatever they You see, this is a thing. You can have the experience, and I think it's wonderful to have the experience, to experience ourselves in that way. It shows us we're not stuck, but it, it's also impermanent. Or we can have a mystical experience, and that is very exhilarating. It's very, very exciting. You feel, wow, it's like, oh, you know, and you might, I mean, different things can happen. Once what I, what I experienced was suddenly, I totally, totally experienced everybody, everybody at the Buddha nature. And it was fantastic. But then, like all things, it passed. <laughs> and then, how can you live from that? It's very hard when you get stuck and obsessed and this and that. 
but you have a faint, faint memory of it. But it's faint. So really, the sudden and gradual is really about how can I practice in daily life so then, slowly, slowly, this can become manifest in daily life. And it's not just an experience. To me, I think this is the thing about meditative experience. Because, of course, you can also have great meditative state. Often they call jhanas. In the Zen tradition, they call samadhi state. And so you can have this really amazing, different, great concentration state. But is that going again to make a difference to the way you behave, to the way you are? One of my friends long ago, he was reputed to have experienced lots of the jhanas, he read lots of books. He even had done lots of therapy. And we lived in community with him. And it was tough. <laughs> and we thought, thanks, he's had all these things, otherwise it could be worse. <laughs> so we have to see, we are multi-perspectival beings. And when the Buddha talked about right concentration, because right concentration is one of the eightfold paths, actually there is two types of right concentration. One is through the concentration state, what is called the jhanas, but the other one is actually right concentration coming out of the practice and helping us to cultivate the Eightfold Path. And so personally, if we go back to the aspiration of wisdom and compassion, in my experience, what brings wisdom and compassion? And personally, I would say that the anchoring helps us to stabilize, helps us to dissolve some of the selfing. But the other very important element, it's not enough. Because the Buddha himself did all the jhanas and all kind of thing, and he said, it's not enough. It doesn't, that's not the way. The way is actually through the vipassana, through looking deeply. And through looking deeply into impermanence into dukkha, into conditionality. And to me, that's where I really saw wisdom and compassion. When through the practice, then I could bring a stable vipassana, but not a special stability, but just to be stable, to be able to be there, to change. And if you look at it, Impermanence has two aspects. One is ultimate change. But often we use impermanence as fatalism. Oh, the glass is broken or the vase is broken. Who cares? It's impermanent. Especially if it's not mine, even more so. And I used to do that. But then I saw my father die. I saw his last breath. And then I understood impermanence. And then it totally changed the way I looked at people. Because I really knew <coughs> for myself. And that's one of the self-examination. That my life and other people's lives rested upon a single breath. And when I looked at people from that perspective, I stopped looking at the stories and the idea about them, and I just met them where they were. 
I met my mother as a human being, a friend as a human being first, and me having a story with them second. And it totally transformed my relationship. The other aspect of impermanence is the fact that we have a potential for change. To me, this is a gift of impermanence. And this is a gift we can give to ourselves and others. That when we see ourselves and others, we go beyond, I am always like this. I will never change. They are always like that they will never change. To me, this is one of the most uncompassionate things we can do, is negate the possibility of change of someone. I am not saying that the change is going to be fast, because when we look at change, we think it's what happened fast. You need to change now. <laughs> but it takes time. It takes time for us. It takes time for others. And to me, what I love again and again is when, in a way, I plant seeds. And then many years later, people might say, oh yes, you said that then. And it's so helpful now. Or if I kind of keep giving love to someone. And then, at some point, by themselves, they change and how I can try to support that change. To me, that is wise compassion. And that's why, for me, the wisdom and the compassion are really linked with vipassana. But of course, supported by concentration, supported by the anchoring. But I would not say necessarily necessitating a great experience, a great meditative experience, a great concentration stay. I had a friend once, he told me this wonderful story. He was long ago in some Asian country, and they were all doing, you know, this, you know, week retreat, and etc., etc. And my friend had meditated for some time, you know, and was always expecting the big moment, you know, you sit in meditation, yes, 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 you know, you're waiting for something special to happen. A lot of people <coughs> waiting, waiting. So he was waiting, waiting. And go forth, nothing was happening. And then there was a young girl who just started meditation that week and who had this amazing experience. He was like, this is not fair. <laughs> but that young lady did not think much of it. She thought, mm, okay, you know, I go back to my life, you know, sell shoes in the shop. <laughs> it just was like that. So I think we have to, to be careful. I think the experience can really nurture us, can make us experience ourselves differently. But I think we have to be careful. They are not the end of the path. Well, I think, I think the path is really about developing and manifesting wisdom and compassion in whatever way we can. So that's what I wanted to say. And then I wanted to answer a note Stephen has not answered. You know, I keep on him. Have you answered your note? <laughs> He's trying to keep up the poor thing. So this one. So the meditation incorporating words, incorporating sound while working well as an anchor for the stormy sea of mental proliferation is having the effect of draw, drawing the locus of my somatic experience more into the head, which results in muscle clenching from the neck. Well, listening, I've been trying to do so more from the belly and so I wonder what you think of that. So yes, I think whatever way we anchor, whatever method we use, we have to also see that each of us has our own condition. Mental condition, physiological condition, emotional condition. So we have to see, for example, with the listening meditation, if you have teenagers 
ringing in the ears, I re would not recommend to do it indoors, but I would recommend to do it outdoors. If doing the listening meditation makes you too focused in the head and then is not helpful, then yes, you can try to listen in a different way, or you can try to use a different anchor. I think it's very important to explore the same with the breath. Some people, if they have asthma, to focus on the breath is not helpful. For some, it might be a little bit helpful. But then for them, listening to the breath might be better. So I think what is very important is to see whichever anchor I use, how is it impacting me? Can I use it in the regular way? Or do I find a different way to use it? Or do I use something else? I think we, all of us, at that level, have to become our own teacher. Because you know your own condition. I don't know them. That's what I wanted to say. Are there any questions or comments? <coughs> Um, it's not a very well-formed question, but I'm just wondering about, I mean, in terms of meditation and um, developing compassion within this tradition, is there any kind of intentional practice at all, like the sort of Brahma Viharas, or do one, does one just develop faith that, you know, it will develop as a, as a, as a result of the development of this? So, uh, as I mentioned previously, uh, if you do the questioning, the, the, the compassion will be more in the dissolving the selfie. I mean, that I experienced within, within six months of doing it. I found myself like, it was very interesting. Uh, I was, uh, I just had done one three months retreat. I was in the free season and I was in a bank changing money. And the bank teller gave me too much back. And my first thought was, yeah! <laughs> One against the capitalist system and more for me. And then what was interesting is my body stopped. Instead of kind of going away with my load, my body stopped and said, uh-uh. <laughs> and then I thought, yeah, I cannot do this because the fellow might get into trouble. So, to my utter surprise, I retraced my steps, gave back the money, and ever since then, whenever somebody gave me back too much change, I tell them, no, no, no. And they look at me like, what's the matter with this lady? You know, even with the insurance, I have done it, and she was like, why do you need to do this? You know? <laughs> and, and so, to me, I would say by doing the questioning, we are dissolving the, the selfie, and so there will be more, more compassion. But I would say, as I mentioned previously, the practice in terms of the sound tradition will be the practice of ethics, meditation, and wisdom. So in a way, the practice is not just meditation. The practice is Equal. I mean, this is something my teacher said again and again and again. Every talk, we would get it. The three trainings, you must do them together. Like he would say, it's like a tripod on top of which you can put something, you can put a pot. If you only have two legs, it doesn't serve anything. And so really, the idea is that, I would say, you cultivate compassion through the ethics, through the meditation, and through the wisdom. That's very much the way they would look at it. And not just in ways through a technique of meditation. No, I was just finding it interesting not not doing any meta practice this week and feeling a bit of a lack of gets it. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, I know, I know. I feel one is kind of like, uh, uh, I mean, of course, but it's not because we don't, in this retreat, we don't talk about meta practice. At, if you want to do so, please do so. I mean, that's what we said. If you want to do loving kindness, please do it. But they, they, see, it, they see it in a wider framework.
Yes. I'm, I'm not sure anymore if I misunderstood something that's said or whether um, yeah, I've actually got an idea about a type of practice or a, a way of practicing from, um, I think, the second day um, way, when you first introduced the concept of the anchor and it was almost to describe it as a multitasking. Whilst your brain is doing all the thinking and emoting and doing what it does, you can actually get on with the business of meditating without paying attention to that noise that is taking place. Did I read that into what you, you said, or did you actually say that? No, 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 it's a, I did not say it that way, but it's an interesting way of, it, of uh, rephrasing it. No, no, it's an interesting way of rephrasing it. Uh, yeah, because in a way, what you're rephrasing is actually what I'm saying. So, uh, do I stand by it or not, phrased in that way? <laughs> but I didn't fantasize it, so you did yeah. say it in a different way. Exactly. So, multitasking as a meditative practice is a possibility or not? You see, it depends what we mean by multitasking. Because see, what we mean generally by multitasking taxing, tasking, is that I intentionally answer the phone, watch TV, and is writing my financial report. So generally that's the idea of multitasking, is that you intentionally do three different things. So actually what you do here is that you have three things in the foreground. I mean, that's the idea. If, if it's multitasking, everything is to the same degree normally. I mean, that's, that's the idea. I'm not personally, I don't think it's possible. A washing machine might be on whilst you're doing the bleaching or something else and cooking on the other side. But they're not going on at the same time at the same intensity, are they? You have to prioritize. You ah. have to let go of something into the background. Exactly. Right. So maybe we're not talking about multitasking. Okay. <laughs> or we have a different idea about it. So what I'm saying is that I'm more talking of what I would call, in a way, being human. Being human means that we have six senses from the Buddhist perspective. We hear, we smell, we taste, we think, we feel, etc. So, at any given moment, all the senses are operating. Unless you, know, one of, you know, unless you are blind or deaf or whatever, but generally you have all the six senses operating. So what I'm saying is that the meditation is not to stop the operation of the six senses. But generally, we actually kind of are more taken by one or two. You know, so often, a lot of the time, we're really taken by the thought. The thought are a big one. Or we might be more taken by feeling in the heart certain emotion connected to certain thought, which reinforce each other. Or we might be really kind of taken by a sensation. So this is the operation. So then, this will be operating that, I mean, of course, with some concentration practice, you can have the impression that the operation is stopping, but that I won't go there. This is another story. We won't go there. <laughs> That's something else. So then, we're sitting in meditation, and all our senses are operating. And we decide, at my suggestion, if you want to follow it, you're not obliged to, that you're going to anchor in one specific part of the operation flowing of the conditions. So let's say you anchor in the breath. So then you put your, you prioritize the breath and the rest of the operation, the washing machine is in the background. And I don't think, when is it going to finish this washing machine? You know, I have something else to do that. 
It's just the sound of the washing machine, and I'm not doing anything with it if I can. So time to time, is it finished or not? I did not hear the clear. Back to the breath. <laughs> so the idea is that in the foreground, you have the anchor. And in the background, there is an operating system going on. And then some of it will go in the foreground, I mean, will come. And then you forget the breath. Then you remember the breath. The so breath back in the foreground, the rest in the background. That's more what I was... Uh, so you, you did say that? Yes. <laughs> Thank you. That's great. Um, so, so is, is this a kind of a housewife's approach to meditation? <laughs> yes. Um, is that individual? Is that, is that something you made up? Or is that a part of the Korean tradition you're looking at? I mean, I've, I've just never come across that concept. And for me, this retreat is just meant, you know, a fabulous discovery of this type of um, technique. Yeah, I presume so. You see, in, in Korea, they really don't go into details, generally. They really don't go into details. They're not the great detailed people. I mean, in the book, a bit, but even then, not as detailed as that. So the explanation I give are generally from my own experience, like what I kind of and in terms of the concentration is by seeing that, personally, I find that if I go on the more narrow concentration, it tends me up. I become tense. If I go on this totally space, I mean, I don't go anywhere. I'm too spaced out, so I'm in the middle. And is it part of it coming from my Zen training? I cannot say. Is it my Zen training, meeting, Vipassana training? I cannot say. But that's what seems to me to make sense, that you do this and then you can go a little there or a little there. Makes sense to me too, thank you. Yes? Can I ask a question about explanation, um, following on from that, about whether you have any qualms about explaining things, given that in the tradition it's more standard not to. Is it, do we Westerners just need more explanation for it to work? Well, uh, there is a, a monk, a Korean monk, who has the most Twitter follower in uh, Korea. <laughs> and he wrote a book from the tweet, he did, and he sold a million copies. Now he's like, you know, the big mega star. He's a friend of mine. And the reason everybody loved his tweet was because it was so ordinary, simple explanation. So, personally, I can understand why my... I mean, my teacher was actually good because he did explain. Like, he would give these talks, like very kind of, you know, very Zen talk. And then he would say, now nah, I'm going to put feet to the snake. And then he would explain to us things. And so in a way, I think I am following a little bit his model. That he was not, people who are into sudden and gradual are less subitist, you would say. They, kind of, they generally give a more explanation. The ones who are really into sudden, sudden, then they're really not into explanation. <laughs> So possibly I follow a little from my tradition and from the example. But it seems to me, if you're teaching something, you have, you have to be clear about it. You know, at least you need to explain what you're doing. Otherwise, you know, they can just do it themselves. <laughs> I mean, if you don't give explanation, what's the purpose of a teacher? I mean, that's what I would say. <laughs> okay, and then we have... Uh, stop here so we have a little uh, walking meditation thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and dharma seed please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate